Meow. This is Tanya Todd, writer, producer, and soon-to-be director of Morning Sacrifice, a tragic romance where a vampire poses as a detective to help the woman he loves search for her missing husband. This sensuous detective noir short film explores how even the most altruistic love can turn monstrous. If this story strikes a titillating nerve, or if you simply love vampires, consider contributing to our crowdfunder at seedandspark.com. Funding for this film is supported in part by Nevada Arts Council and National Endowment of the Arts, but we still have a long way to go. Check out our enticing incentives. Pick the choice that excites you most. Join me, and we shall make a dark and delicious love story. That's Morning Sacrifice at seedandspark.com. Hello and welcome to Banned Books Conversations, where radical readers discuss prohibited prose. I'm your host, Tanya Todd. Banned books are literary works that have been removed from a library shelf or school curriculum. Over the course of Banned Books Week, this series will cover seven different banned books, the reasons they were banned, and the value in reading them. Today's book is This One Summer, written and illustrated by cousins Mariko and Jillian Tamaki. I should warn you, there may be spoilers ahead, but before we get into that, let's meet our guests. Welcome, everyone. Please tell us a bit about yourselves and, you know, just who you are and what is it you do. And we'll start with Brenna. Hi, everybody. I am Brenna Thumler. I am the author of the Sheets series from Oni Press. Uh, I've been doing graphic novels for uh, about like seven, eight years now. And I reside in Pennsylvania. And yeah, that's that's a little bit about me. And Veronica? Hello, thank you so much for having me. My name is Veronica Clash. I am a primarily short format writer, anything from flash fiction to personal essays, articles, etc. I'm also the associate editor for OK Donkey magazine. Um, so that's, that's what I do. And my brother, Tony. Hello, Wonder Twin. I'm Tony <laughs> Farina. I um, am a podcaster. I'm a writer. Um, my novel, uh, Welcome to Mansfield, is out now. I am a teacher. I'm excited to be here. This is super, this is super geeky, exciting fun. <laughs> Thanks for having me, friend. Well, we'll start with you. What is it about the Band Books conversation that interests you? Well, we did, I mean, it's super important to me as an English teacher, obviously, um, as a reader, as a writer, um, these are things that matter. And, and anytime you want to take, um, something away from somebody, it's almost always fear. And I think what you did last year and what you're continuing to do this year and why we have to continue to have the conversation outside of band books week, but year round is just to ask the question, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? And when I told people I'm coming on again this year to do to do it this, we did 1984 last year and we're doing this. People are like, well, 1984, uh, but this one summer. They're like, what could what were people thinking? So it'll be it'll be good. But I think it's important because if anybody asks that question, what are you doing? Why is that book being banned? We need to address it. And so it's just important to have the conversation and just say, what are people scared of? Yeah. How about you, Brenna? Yeah, um, like as an author. 
you're always questioning and kind of scared of what you can put into your books. I, I it's important to include diverse voices and and talk about mental health issues and the things that the reasons why books are getting banned these days. And you hear people say, "Oh, it's, it's good to get your book banned because more people are buying it," but then it's not good for the readers, like the people, the accessibility of of people in schools and libraries when these books are taken away from them, it might sell better in certain areas, but then then it becomes up to the parents to get the books of the kids and are the parents going to do that? So it's 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 a scary thing for for young readers who who should be reading these kind of books. Mm. How about you, Veronica? Yeah, um, what both uh, folks were saying, definitely, uh, I feel that as well. And in addition, I think like with any conversation that can be a little controversial, part of it is bringing awareness to the topic. I think a lot of folks, the books that you are discussing during this series, some of them are very notoriously banned, some less. So I think it's important to have that conversation on both fronts of like, hey, you might not be aware. This is what's being banned. This is what's being done. These are the types of books that folks are making the decision that your children can't read and they're making that decision for you. Are you okay with that? Uh, I think that's definitely uh, an important part of the conversation that I'm excited to be a part of. Well, we'll start with you this time. Have you ever had an experience with a book that offended you? And, and if so, how did that affect you? I think when we talked last time, I had brought up Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Uh, besides that, I don't think I've ever had an experience with a book that has personally offended me. I think a lot of that has to do with more recently the level of curation that I have when it comes to the media that I consume. I have become very, very selective in what I allow into my life because there's just so much out there that we are bombarded with constantly that I feel a certain protectiveness over my time and how I want to spend it. So if a book has been recommended to me by someone who I trust, I'm a lot more likely to engage with it. So that's the type of media that I'm choosing these days. So it makes it a lot easier to avoid media that would offend me. And for those who maybe didn't catch last year, why did Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas offend you? A, they need to go back and listen to that episode because it's fantastic. Uh, but Fear and Loathing uh, stylistically has a lot of issues for me, though it was very groundbreaking, created a whole new type of journalism. There was a lot of hostility towards women, a lot of hostility towards hospitality workers. And as a former hospitality worker, I took great offense at the very cavalier way that the author was describing holding a knife to a waitress's throat and essentially physically abusing a housekeeper. So those are things that I don't need in my uh, in my reading for pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Brenna? I I can't say for certain if a book has offended me personally. I think it's it's kind of a matter of me trying to distance myself from the characters themselves. So there have been, of course, moments in in books that I've read that I felt a little uncomfortable, maybe, but. If I if I force myself to think of it as somebody else's story and not my own, it's it's definitely helped. I think that there's this fine line between something okay for a writer to say versus oh I'm creating this character 
I'm not I'm not creating a character who you should like, but I'm creating a character that's that maybe exists. And so kind of distinguishing between like, oh, I should be respecting this voice versus this is just a voice that's different and it's okay to dislike this person uh, versus them actually offending me. That's a good point. How about you, Tony? Yeah, I would say to piggyback off of that, first of all, the fear and loathing thing, keep in mind that that accidentally created part of the QAnon crazy conspiracy theory. And again, we still shouldn't ban fear and loathing, but people read that. And that's where the whole adrenaline of children is coming from, from that book, a joke that he made offhandedly in that book. So that always blows my mind. I'm glad you brought it up because like, oh, it's a book. It's it's not real. People, trust. It's he was on all the drugs too. Um but yeah, so for, for me, that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all of them, all of them at the same time. Um, for me, it's a matter of, um, you know, to piggyback off what Brenna was saying, there, there's definitely t- books I've put down because I'm like, this isn't for me. I feel it's glamorizing or glor- you know, uh, glorifying something that I dislike. Um, but then there are books that I always get nervous, like books that I really like that are, that I know are offensive. Like I recently reread American Psycho, which always makes me nervous when I reread or rewatch American Psycho because I always worry that the people read it and are like, Patrick Bateman's awesome. And you're like, no, no. But that's why I would totally understand if someone read that and was like, oh, you know, like, like that is offensive. Everything Patrick does, I don't think is real. I think he's on all the drugs too. And I don't think that anything that happens in that book is actually real. I think it's all happening in his mind, which I think is what makes it an amazing story. But I could see that. So there's been those times where I'm really uncomfortable I've definitely, I'm more often to be offended by a badly written book. There's definitely (laughs) been books where I'm like, how did this get published? Liberty flu, you know, and I've got friends books that I know I've read their drafts and that's so much better than this. So that is more offensive to me when a really terrible book is out there doing well than a book that I disagree with. Cause if I disagree with it, guess what I can do? I can just close it and that's okay. Somebody else is out there. So. I'm guilty of being offended about badly written books too. <laughs> we all are, right? Yeah. Why? <laughs> so we'll start with you. And I think I know your answer based on what you just said, but is there a scenario where you feel banning a book is the correct course of action? No, I just don't. I think there, I think in your house, like you, like what Brenna was saying before, like if we ban it out of a library or whatever, then it's up to the parents. And so if a parent reads the book and does the work, and and says, you know, I don't think I want you to read American Psycho. You're eight. Yeah, don't, don't. That's right. Don't give that to your eight-year-old. You should not. Um, and I even think there's some adults who need to be talked to before they read American Psycho. Like, this is, this is satire. Let's talk about why this is not good to be like Patrick. But no, I don't think you should, I don't think you should ban any books. I think you should have conversations. And I am pro-ratings. Um, I don't, I'm not against that. Like films have ratings, TV shows have ratings, music has ratings. I'm okay if you want to put a rating on a book too. Like if you want to, not a rating, like don't read, but like a rating, like, Hey, like trigger warnings on the book. Like this has sex language and violence in it. So that helps. So to me, that's not a ban. That's just a a notification of, of that. So I think maybe that could thread a needle. How about you, Veronica? Yeah, I lean that way as well. I think in the sort of general sphere, banning a book 
does a couple of things, right? You're making the decision on behalf of someone else. You're taking that choice away from them to choose to engage with the material, regardless of what it is. Um, and you're also, in a different way, putting a little bit of a spotlight on it for better or for worse, right? You're highlighting that book in a certain way. And I think it just becomes really tricky when you're making those types of decisions of who's making that type of decision. What is the motivation behind it? I am a bigger proponent of providing context rather than pulling something entirely away. Maybe there's a foreword that can be included to give context to what the reader is about to experience. You know, like obviously Mein Kampf, I'm not going to be out there recommending that people read Hitler's most prominent work of literature. But I'm also, as a Jewish person, I'm not going to say that book should be pulled because that book gives us insight into history. And of course, the whole hope of history is that we learn from it so as not to repeat it. So giving a book like that context is, I think, a lot more important for us as a society rather than just pulling it away and stashing it and making sure that no one ever looks at it again. Really well said. How about you, Brenna? Yeah, I mean, uh, Tony and Veronica pretty much summed it up. I It's all about the conversations we have about these books. I, I think that if we leave any concept in the dark and don't talk about it, that's dangerous. And so... So allowing students the opportunity to read about all ideas and discuss them in the right way is is what's key. I, I think it's also difficult though, because you know, if like banning a certain type of book in a school, especially say like an LGBTQ book, the parent might be against a child reading that. And and so it shouldn't necessarily be up to the parent at that point because there's certain content that might be good for the kid and the parent disagrees with that. So yeah, I mean, generally, like, like I, I agree, banning should not happen ever. Um, and I think that if there wasn't kind of just a warning, like here is the content that is in this book, parents might be able to have a say on certain content or certain uh, content that shouldn't be for kids, but there's gotta be some way for these kids with parents pre preventing them from reading the concepts they need to read about there needs to be a way for these kids to get these books. Kids who maybe don't see themselves represented anywhere exactly. else. And then mm -hmm. now the one place where they can get it is the library and they're being told, nope, not there either. Exactly. So we'll start with Veronica on this one. How does the concept of the slippery slope fit in with the desire to ban books? I think that works kind of in two different directions, right? When you hear a lot about the sort of conservative arguments for banning and pulling certain books away, especially when it relates to content for children. Their thing is, you know, well, it starts with this and then it's a slippery slope. And then before you know it, they are identifying as a helicopter. Like, okay. So that's kind of their rationale of it's a slippery slope. But I also kind of see it from the other perspective of once you start Again, pulling that choice, removing choice, that to me is the slippery slope, not a kid is going to read a book and then is going to start getting ideas and make rash, silly decisions. Children always make silly decisions. That's kind of part of being a, a child. 
that's the, <laughs> the freedom you're afforded in being a child. You can make decisions that are not the best. But the idea of adults taking choice away from other adults too, right? Because it's not just, well, my child should not be exposed to this. It's no children should be exposed to this. And then you're taking away the choice of other parents to parent the way that they feel is appropriate. You're making that decision for them. And where does that end, right? That to me is the slippery slope of when you start pulling decisions away from people, where does it end? And why are you the person who gets to make that decision? Mm. Brenna. Yeah, people seem to claim that, you know, some book with content they don't want their kids to read is going to lead to worse things. <laughs> I mean, books are powerful, but they're not that powerful. <laughs> like the reader still has so much authority over what they're reading and what they're absorbing. It's it's in the reader's hands. And like Tony mentioned before, you have the power to close the book. So it's it's these parents or or adults assuming that this this book is going to have that much influence over a kid and and really it's it's all the influence around them it's just like what they're bringing to the book that is the biggest influence tony yeah I, I, that's so well said and the slippery slope argument i mean i teach it like i teach my students why it's a logical fallacy it's a logical fallacy for a reason like it's it's such a and when i always ask them is well how do you know the difference between a slippery slope and a cause and effect like, and that is where you, that's to me how you break the slippery slope argument and as to say, okay, you're calling it a slippery slope, but I'm going to show you the true cause and effect of you making these choices. And here's the thing that's going to happen. And like, like I said, I mean, there's, there's always the assumption when you look at a lot of these people who are, who are making that argument, are people of means or people like, well, if you don't, if you want that book, go to the bookstore and get it. Yeah. Well, I was not that kid. I didn't have money to go to the bookstore every week and get whatever I want, but I definitely had shoes. And I could walk to the library all the time. And I did. I was a kid in the 70s who wandered around by myself in single digits. And I walked to the library all the time. And it costs us nothing. And so, you know, late fees, late, you know, a dime a day, which I racked up. But, you know, like still cheaper than buying a book. And so that's that's a that's the argument is, is, is like you're saying, well, let's, you, here's the cause and effect relationship that your slippery slope argument is making is that kids who can't afford books, kids who can't get the information. Um, who can't find themselves, you're, you're taking that away from them. And what does that do for them? And what does that do for their mental health, for their physical health? You know, what is all that? So to me, you show them the other way of like, well, you may be offended and have to have an uncomfortable conversation with your kid. These, all these other kids get nothing, you know? So I, I, it's just really frustrating and it's a logical fallacy for a reason. It's nonsense. Well, I'm sure you've all noticed that in recent years, there's been a pattern in the themes that get books banned. And I'm wondering what you think this pattern says about where we are as a society. And we'll start with Brenna. Yeah, I, I mean, of course, we have made progress, but I think it is the progress that is scaring a very certain type of people. <laughs> um, they just can't they can't bear to accept that others are possibly starting to feel safe and better about their existence in the world. And it's, I think it's the fear that's like making them want to stop that from happening. And that's just really, really tragic. It really is. How about you, Tony? Yeah. I, it, 
fear is always the thing, right? It all comes down to that. And it is a fear of whatever. And you didn't say it, Brenna, but I'll say it as the white guy on the panel. It's the white guys. It's the white guys who are like, sorry, man. Token white guy. <laughs> Dude, as the token white guy, time's up. I'm so exhausted by you. Like, I'm just tired of it. And that's what it is. And 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 it's it's fear. And it's always been that. I mean, statistically speaking, white guys are the minority in the world. Even in America, there's more women than men. There's more people of color of men, male and female than there are white dudes, but white dudes are, you know, 80% of all the power and it's power. It's about power. It's about control. It's about a fictional narrative um, because the, you know, the data proves it, this is going to, time will be up soon and you're not making it better for, for the white guys who aren't you, you know? So it's really <laughs> frustrating. So to me, that's what it is. It's just power. It's just power. And it's, so the state, what it argue, what it says about the state of where we are right now is I, I think we're in, unfortunately a backslide. Um, but, but as somebody who wants to be hopeful and who has kids who are millennials and Gen Z's and has a grandkid, it's like, I'm saying, I have hope that times like we're running out, like, Okay, boomer. Okay, Gen Xer, let's move along. Let's get out of the way. So that's my hope is that it's bad now. We backslid, but maybe it's just one step forward, one step back, and we can get our two steps forward again relatively soon. That's I'm just clock watching, man. <laughs> Stresses me <laughs> out. Veronica. Yeah, I think it definitely reeks of a backlash to recent progress. And what it says about us as a society is that we have certain people in power, like Tony was saying, those people uh, are used to being in power and they are feeling that power structure shift and it scares the ever living lights out of them, which is why you're seeing just this tighter, tighter grip. And which I think Tony is right. That tighter grip is going to alienate a younger voting audience that doesn't see an alignment with those values. So hopefully the more recent kind of backlash leads to as younger people start aging into voting, more of truly fulfilling those people's fears that they will lose their power and other folks with different values will now hold those positions and be able to drive progress forward more continuously. So Tony, we'll start with you because you're our resident teacher here. You're not just the designated white guy. You're the designated. Thank teacher. you. I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> also designated white guy in this conversation. Happy to be here. <laughs> Thanks for including me. Hey, inclusion means including everyone. Yes. I want to, I want to know what you think the value is in reading books that might be considered offensive to some people. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, Books are the windows to the rest of the world where we don't live. Books are empathy machines. And so if you are offended by something, it's you can have a conversation with yourself or your partner or whomever is around like, why did that hurt my feelings? Why did I feel uncomfortable about that? So it's important to do that. Um, you know, when you grow up, wherever you grew up, we all grew up where we did. Different parts of the country, different sized towns, big cities, small whatevers, you know, and and but we don't get the opportunity to see the world. So when you read a book, you get the real chance to see everything. So for me, you want to read the stuff that makes you uncomfortable, and then you can have the conversation about 
what it is. And, you know, and again, it, what Brenda said is true. If somebody says, oh, that book is banned, we want to check it out. It is true that doesn't happen. And I know I am guilty of being like, oh, what, why? Um, I want to know why. And sometimes I'm like, oh, that is super offensive, but still would defend the right for it to exist, you know, but the only way I can know is to educate myself. Education is everything. Shocking that I said that, I know. Yes. <laughs> Veronica. Uh, kind of a combination of what Tony was saying and what Brenna touched on earlier, there is value in that separation of, yes, the character is doing something awful, but this doesn't necessarily mean this is an extension of what the author feels or the author thinks. This is the author trying to illustrate something. And I think it's important if you're encountering uh, any sort of media literature that's making you uncomfortable, it's important to interrogate what's behind that discomfort. Is this something that truly offends you, that goes counter to your values? And so what does it mean to engage with that piece of literature, with that piece of media? Is it pushing you outside of your comfort zone in a good way? Is it introducing you to things that you might have not thought of before? or is it offensive in a very sort of racial, anti-Semitic kind of way? And if so, again, is it the author saying this is the way to, to be, this is the way to think? Or is the author trying to say something else through the vehicle of a character or through the vehicle of plot? So, and like Tony said at, at the beginning, you all, you can always walk away, right? No, no one, again, unless of course it's an assigned uh, book at school, no one is forcing you to to read anything you could always close the book and walk away uh, but I do think it's important to first interrogate what is causing the discomfort and and go a little deeper yeah that's a good point how about you Brenna yeah um kind of building on what Veronica said it if I think if a book is offending somebody more than likely at least just sort of challenging the perspective on something and if they're that afraid that there's that big of a threat to their perspective. They probably have a bad perspective in the first place. Um, I, I think they have to realize that, like I said, a book does not have that much power to change them if they don't let it. And they're under no obligation to change their perspective ultimately. Uh, so yeah, I think, I think we definitely should be willing to read so-called offensive books if only to just be introduced to um, like ideas and opinions that are different than our own. So we're all storytelling. I have like a quick, sorry, quick thing to add to that. And also the word offensive, it's not like a universal thing, right? What might be offensive to me might not be offensive to someone else. So if you're uncomfortable, again, coming out and saying, well, this made me uncomfortable, so no one should read it. Well, it made you uncomfortable right. <laughs> because of your particular experiences, your particular background. There's no need to be prescriptive with what other people are willing or wanting to engage with if it's something that you don't want to engage with. Excellent point. So I'm curious what effect an author's intentionality versus the reader's interpretation should have when discussing book bans. And we will start with Veronica. I've been thinking a lot about intentionality. As, as a writer, you want to, like Brenna was saying earlier, you want to be aware of what you're putting 
on the page? What are your intentions behind creating that character? What are your intentions with that line of dialogue, with this scene? What are you trying to convey? What are you trying to tell the reader? And obviously, as a writer, I have control, a certain amount of control over that, but it's limited, right? My intention for what is on the page, as soon as it's on there and it's published and it's out there, then it's out of my control, right? People can interpret things a million different ways that I didn't anticipate. So I think it is important to understand the author's intention and what they're trying to accomplish before skewering or before uh, kind of deciding unilaterally, well, you know, we can't engage with their work anymore because they had a character say this or do this. It's like, okay, but is there a purpose here? And as a writer, that's the question that I ask myself before putting something on the page. So I think intentionality is really important. Is the intention to try to push you out of your comfort zone, to make a point about something horrifying, or is the intention just to get a rise out of the reader because the author knows this is a controversial word or a controversial statement? What's the intention? And of course, as a reader, there's only so much that you can do. It's up to the author to do the heavy lifting of putting that intentionality out there, whether that's through the work itself or by providing context, which we have the ability to do that more than ever, right? Every writer has a platform, right? They have social media. They have a way of communicating, whoa, 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 this is not what I Clearly, anyone can interpret my work the way they wish to, but this is what I was going for, and this is what I was hoping people would walk away with. You know, that's a really good point, and it it triggers a memory for me. Years ago, during the Las Vegas Writers Conference, they have they have this event called First Page Reads, and so just the first page is read for a panel of editors and literary agents. And what they do is they raise their hand when they would reach the point where they would no longer continue reading this piece as or taking it into consideration. And you happen to be on the panel where my piece was read, but it was blind. So you didn't know this and it wasn't anything you had ever read. And you said it came off as fat phobic to you. And that was offensive to you. And it hurt me because that was not my intention. But I looked into it and I've decided to lean into that. Like, okay, well, maybe this character does have some element of that. And now it has been incorporated as part of the story rather than this fleeting offhand hurtful comment. Now she's going to be called to task about having that thought. And I thank you for that. But it, you know, it does have to do with the author's intentionality versus the reader reaction. There's a whole separate conversation there, but I, I do want to thank you for bringing that up. What are your thoughts on this, Brenna? I think it it is really scary for the author because just using um, like grief and depression, for example, and in the mental health realm, and I'm sure we'll be touching on this when we talk more about this one summer, <laughs> um, but every single human being experiences depression differently. So, so an author taking this worldwide concept and narrowing it into a story and pulling from their own individual experiences to create a character that's so limiting. And yet 
it's also difficult to create a story that's that's encompasses the entire world of mental health. So both creating this very narrow character, but wanting to speak to a wide audience is so difficult. And and it's not like we can just not talk about mental health. Like we, we either have to <laughs> be specific and, and create a realistic uh, portrayal of mental health from our own minds or or just be very vague with it and not really be realistic with it. So it's it's such a hard line to cross. And I'm still I'm still trying to figure that out for myself. <laughs> I think we all are. How about you, Tony? Yeah, it's um it's a tough one. I like to think that you know, the, the argument is we write, we're all writers, we put our books out into the world and then they live. And in however many years the hope is. Um, whether we're, when we're long gone, our work will still be out there and people, and it's hard to fathom when you're alive and you're writing it, you're putting it out there, but you know, like my favorite writer, Jane Austen, she has no idea that she's, you know, she has no idea the effect she has on, on so many people still. Um, hopefully that is, I wish that for all of us, right? I wish I'm hopeful. I love the sheets series, by the way, like that's how I met Brenna because I loved her book so much. I just cold sent her an email. I'm like, will you please come on my show and talk to me? And she did. And now we're friends. And, um, and I can't wait. We're going to talk about late soon, but you know, it's like, it's so good. And I hope that in a hundred years, some kid finds sheets and it brings that kid the hope and the, um, sorry, it's such a good book. It gives that kid the, what it, what she needs because some, she sees herself in that, in that story. Um, and so for me, like Brenna told the story that Brenna wants to tell. Um, but in 50 years or a hundred years or tomorrow, a kid is going to find it and get exactly. And, and it may not be a one for one, but it's like, Oh, here's somebody who's going through what I'm going through, who feels what I feel. And so the goal is we write it, we put it out in the world and um, people will get, and it was, that means they love it. Like I hope they do for all of our work or they hate it, which is fine. But keep in mind right now, somebody for the first time ever read To Kill a Mockingbird or read Pride and Prejudice or read this one summer and didn't like it. Those are five star books for me, but somebody's giving it a genuinely a one star for what they genuinely didn't connect with it. They genuinely find that book problematic or boring or whatever. So, you know, there's also that there's also that just personal taste. It just isn't for everyone. And so we can't try to write a book for everybody. We just have to tell our story and hope and that's our intention. We're setting our intention. And then if you don't connect with it, I'm not going to be super offended. But if you do, and it helps you and it makes your life better, then that's great. Yeah. And I think on top of that, you know, the more books that are available that discuss a certain subject, the more choices a reader will have to find something that they connect with. So if we can just get everybody writing about depression, it, there's got to be enough books that connect with the kid who's seeking the, you know, the story that relates to them. Really good point. <laughs> Just to add to that too, with intentionality, I know there's a lot of discussion of like, well, I never intended to offend. That's why going back to Tony's point, education is so important. If you're going to write about an experience outside of your own, if you're going to include a character that is going to say something that you know is offensive to folks that has a, a statement or a phrase or a word that has a history as someone as a writer it is your responsibility to educate yourself so that you can't just hide behind well I didn't intend to offend 
But so what are you doing? What's the work that you're putting to actively be anti-racist, to actively fight these types of things? We can't just hide behind intentions. We also have to do the work of educating ourselves. And if we're making the decision to include certain things in our work, we have to be able to stand behind that work and say, this is why I included it. And this is why I think it's important. And this is why it's not for everyone. And to Tony's point, I cannot think of anything more boring than a book that is for everyone. <laughs> like what, is, what could be more watered down and terrible that something that universally everyone agrees is fantastic. I cannot think of anything that would be more boring than that. Um, so yeah, part of being radical, part of being anti-racist is doing the work and not just relying on, well, it wasn't my intention to be offensive. Well, why don't we get into today's band book? Yes. Published in 2014, this one summer is a graphic novel coming of age story about two teenage friends during a summer vacation. It won an Eisner Award and an Ignatz Award. It was the second graphic novel to receive a Prince Award and the first to win a Caldecott honor. Brenna, how did you first learn about this one summer? I actually uh, came across this back in 2015 for the first time, and it's it's kind of my origin story as a graphic novelist. Actually, um, so I was in a thrift store and I saw the the spine in you know rows and rows and rows of books, and it it stood out to me among yes, <laughs> beautiful beautiful <laughs> spine. Um, and I pulled it off the shelf and I had never read a graphic novel before. I opened it up and I saw that it was a graphic novel and I was really disappointed because I didn't think I was going to enjoy reading it. But the illustrations were so beautiful that I bought it because it was like $3 thrift store price. Um, should have been way more because it, it, was, it was just, I read it all in one night. It was incredibly beautiful. I had no idea that it had been banned. I don't even know. I don't know when it was banned. Um, it's but, been I don't know. banned multiple times throughout the years and challenged, definitely. Yeah. But I was unaware of that ban at the time of reading it. I just loved it. That was my only emotion. <laughs> so I just want to touch a little bit. You said this, this is your origin story. How did that influence what you do? I... Um, I read it a month before I was asked to work on my very first graphic novel, which was Anne of Green Gables. And I feel like if I hadn't had found this one summer, I wouldn't have had exposure to graphic novels and I wouldn't have known how much I loved it. Uh, and I wouldn't have said yes to working on the project. So I feel like Jillian and Mariko were talking to me and saying, <laughs> you're going to love it just do it. That's magical. <laughs> what timing. I know. How about you, Veronica? How'd you first learn about it? How do you follow up that? I mean, <laughs> my goodness. Uh, I was not aware of this graphic novel before uh, receiving an email from Tanya that was like, hey, these are the banned books I'm planning to do. And I was like, ooh, I read through the list and I was like, this is what I resonate with a lot. I grew up reading comic books. Um, in Israel, so Israeli comic books. So graphic novels, comic books were a big part of my childhood. So I was like, that would be a fun thing to revisit, you know, uh, that type of 
uh, literature. So yeah, I was excited to talk about it. Tony? Yeah. Um, first of all, that's why I begged. I was so glad that we could work this because I knew that story about Brenna. So I'm so excited <laughs> that everybody gets to hear it. Ah, oh, so cool. Um, when you put this on the list, I was like, I got it over here. <laughs> um, I was, this was like the second book I ever got from NetGalley. So NetGalley is a thing where you can get arcs. And as a comic book nerd and comic book reviewer and comic book everything my whole life, um, when I first signed up for NetGalley back in 2014, which is the second book I ever requested, and they gave it to me. And I was like, well, this is the thing where they're just giving you books in early. And all you got to do is write positive reviews about them or write any review. And I got this and they sent it to me and I read it in one sitting. And um, I knew who Mariko was uh, because I'm a nerd. But uh, I, I, boy, good God. This is just perfect. And so uh, so I've read it multiple times over the year. I read it again yesterday in preparation for today. Um, <laughs> any, yeah, so that's it. So I just, it was just there. I saw the cover. I was like, oh, you're giving me books. And that was it. So before it even came out, I got an ARC and um, have been hooked ever since. Well, you kind of already answered this, but prior to reading the book, what elements attracted your attention? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a graphic novel. I knew who Mariko was. And again, Books, you say that we are writers and when, and you know, and of course, Brenna draws her own covers as a graphic novelist, but like when they say, and her covers are beautiful. And when you log into Hoopla Digital, everybody, you see Brenna's cover as one of the background pictures on Hoopla Digital sheets is right there because they know books, covers sell books. It's right there. They're not stupid. And um, this cover is spectacular. Are you kidding me? I mean, look at that. She's, Brenna saw this fine. I saw this cover. It was like, everything you need to know is happening here. You can tell, you know, this, the, um, you know, we don't see Wendy's head. We don't know her name yet, but like, there's something happening here. She's a little more dangerous. She's jumping a little bit higher the way she's jumping. You can understand where they are. It was just gorgeous. And the color, the co and was like, if the whole thing is going to be this, I am all about this kind of coloring. And it is. And so for me, it was just like, love a coming of age, Troy, love a graphic novel. I love Marika, Mariko. So it was a win-win. And I hadn't read Jillian before. This was my first experience with her work. So win all around. Veronica. It was really the, the graphic novel aspect that, that appealed to me the most. Uh, honestly, it's been a while since I've read a graphic novel and it felt wrong that it had been that long. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, I really need to, I need to get some graphic novel in my life right now. You know, it's funny when I was making my list, I was not familiar with this book. I had six books chosen and I realized, oh, I really enjoyed having a graphic novel on the list. I need to do a search for one of those. And I could not find one that I wanted. And so I put it on pause. And then when I was looking into why each of the six I had chosen were banned, that's when I discovered I already have one on the list. No wonder I can't decide one. It's like the, the universe telling me, you don't need a graphic novel. You need to look elsewhere. <laughs> How about you, Brenna? Oh, I, I don't think I need to say any more than just the, the, the spine. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's just the illustrations are so beautiful. And I think, you know, my, my ideas of graphic novels before going into them, I, I had just grown up with this idea that they were all superhero comics and more targeted towards boys. And I didn't really understand how, how wide the, the genre is. And just kind of glancing through in the thrift store, I, there were so many panels without dialogue. I was like, there's so much of the story here being told with, without even. Yes. And, and that resonated to me as an illustrator, because 
like I, I went to art school and, and majored in illustration. So, so much of us, so much of the program was telling stories without words and the ability to do that in, in a, a whole book format was, was so wonderful to me. And I, I could tell that I was going to love the storytelling before I even started reading it. And so much of this story was told in images. I mean, it almost feels like it, it couldn't have been told any other way. And the way the two worked together, I thought was beautiful. So going through it, I had to ask myself the question, what, what made this so polarizing that people wanted to ban it? Just, you know, it's not like there are dirty pictures or something in there. Like, I just could not get what the problem was when I was reading through it. What are your thoughts on that, Veronica? I did a little bit of research. <laughs> because that's what I do. Um, and one of the things that I had noticed is because it received, excuse me, because it received a Caldecott Award, which normally is reserved for younger age groups, mm -hmm. a lot of librarians were stocking it just based off of that award. And they may have been placing it in the wrong category. So children who might have been too young for some of the sexual content. Like you said, it's not dirty pictures, but there are references to sex acts. There's references to pregnancy. There's references to teenage pregnancy. So, you know, this is not stuff necessarily for like elementary age children. But again, because of that Caldecott sticker, librarians were kind of thinking that that's who it was meant for. So children who were too young for this type of content were picking this up and parents were horrified, like, oh, my third grader now knows that blowjobs exist and this is absolutely the worst thing I could possibly imagine. So I feel like a lot of the outrage came from uh, a misunderstanding of who this is meant for. Uh, but still, I think conservatives these days, even the, the 12 to 18 age group that this is designated for, they would still find an issue with that age group knowing, again, that blowjobs exist. It doesn't describe what a blowjob is. It doesn't show any image of it. But just the idea that their child will see those words and then come to them and say, mommy, what's a blowjob? And they do not want to have that conversation. I think that's a big part of why. Uh, this was uh, so polarizing. And then there's also a lot of mention of lesbians because again, mommy, what's a lesbian? And then you need to have a conversation that lesbians exist. And what could possibly be worse than a lesbian and having a conversation with your child? <laughs> no, that was graphic. <laughs> How about you, Brenna? What do you think made it so polarizing? I think that... There are definitely some more mature themes, like you know the the grief of the parent, the the talk of lesbians, um, the the sex and drugs, like you know hinted at every once in a while in the story. Uh, I think the the thing is, Jillian and Marika are telling such a a raw story. The conversations feel so real, and it doesn't feel like they've put this protective veil over it because there are definitely stories out there that talk about the the grief of a parent or or maybe even talk about um lgbtq in in safer uh, you know, quote safer ways um 
and I think Jillian and Mariko just aren't afraid to really dig into the, the realism of this, of these uh, stories. And I think that's great, but I'm sure other people have problems with that. I think you're right about that. It felt very raw and real. It did not feel like there was this protective layer. It, and to me, that was engaging. It felt like a situation that I could have lived through myself rather than, oh, here's some distant story where I feel very removed, but it didn't feel so immersive that it was shocking to me. But I think you're onto something there that it's the realism of it, even though it's illustrated. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts, Tony? <laughs> All of that, everything that everybody said is totally true. And having have having raised girls, um, there's definitely, you have those conversations, like whether it's through a comic book or whatever. I mean, I, I remember having, it was in the car with all four of my daughters and somebody was reading something on some device. I don't even remember what it was, but it was like antiquated laws or something. And it said that in Oklahoma, it wasn't until, you know, 2015 that dildos were allowed. And so I'm in a car with, you know, teen, one teenager and three preteens. And so I, what's a dildo? That was fun. fun time. <laughs> and it was like a game, like a, an E-rated game about like antiquated laws. So life happens. And that is, you know, that, there you go. That was super fun. And the teenager, the oldest one was like in the front seat with me. She was much more panicked than I was about it. She was like, I don't want to hear you explain this to them. Um, so, but, but so like, I think that's part of it is like, this is a book that forces you to have to have conversations with your kids, but you should be having, it's not graphic. It's not, um, anything it's, it's, but it is intense. And I think that's what people are feeling. I also feel, and this is a question I have for the group, I think, and I haven't read this anywhere, but just rereading it this time, like trying to, you know, like getting into the mind of a crazy. Do people queer code Wendy and they think Wendy's in love with Rose and that's a problem and they're struggling with that? Like, I feel like there's this really, to me, I the first time I read it and the eighth time I've read it, I always feel like there's that, they're 18 months apart. And that is what the rift is between them is like in a year, they'll be fine. But during that one weird time Mm -hmm. where Rose is a little too old for Wendy, you know, and that happens in our friendships. But then I was like, well, what I'm just looking for people to find stupid reasons to dislike this book. And again, who cares if she does, if, if Wendy does love Rose, that's good. Fine. That's a heartbreak she's going to have to deal with because Rose isn't going to love her that way. That's okay. That's the book. (laughs) Right. And she might. Right. We don't know. It's like still trying to figure out who she is. She has no idea. So I just wondered if that was it. Like, and I don't know, cause I didn't do the research. I, cause I wanted to just kind of come in and see where everybody was at. But I was like, I don't know if that people were reading that and they, they struggled with the, the, the intimacy. And I think that's part of the rawness of their relationship is they're very intimate friends. They only see each other these two months a year and they're so close and they like, instantly tell each other everything and all the talks about, you know, and like even the last line boobs would be awesome. Like that's the end of it's like, <laughs> they're such good friends and they're so intimate that I think that that freaks people out that idea of like, whether it's platonic or whether it's romantic, whatever. So I just didn't know if there was some queer coding going on. And of course that's that's on that person. So I don't know. That was, I wanted to, I wondered if that was there or not. You may be onto something because when I was reading through it, I kept expecting something like maybe a kiss or something or a curiosity to happen between them because I'm searching for just some reason that this is banned. Like, and, and I don't think that's a reason to ban it, but I know that that is a reason people do ban things. 
And when that didn't happen, I was like, what? what is the big deal with it? I mean, I have read a lot of banned books and sometimes it's like, oh, I guess I can see how this might offend someone who's very small minded. But this one, I struggled to find what was so terribly offensive that they would actually ban it. I can understand you not wanting your particular child, okay, but not to the point where you're going to make a big stink about it. But you may be on as maybe if someone is reading it and they are queer and they they are seeing the signs, oh no, if they are closeted and they don't want to put that out in the world, you very well may be right there, Tony. And I have actually lost track. Of Sorry. Sorry. The question okay. was why I just was curious. Well, I'd be curious, Brenna. And if you guys, no, if you don't I, I know the question. I just don't even remember. Yeah. Did everybody answer it? Because I think I was last. I was definitely <laughs> yeah. last, but I am curious. Am I, and I appreciate you saying that tiny because you thought it too, Brenna and Veronica, did you think, was there any queer coding between the two of them at all? I did not pick up on that necessarily, but like, okay, I need to tell some, I need to explain something really quick. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, my graphic novel Anne of Green Gables was recently challenged because of a scene, an illustrated scene of Diana and Anne standing together by a tree holding hands as they think they're going to part forever. And the, the person who was complaining about this was saying that they're clearly lesbians and they wanted it banned. Wow. And I, <laughs> That's all it takes to be a lesbian. Huh? Yeah. So, so I think people just want to find problems with it. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if people saw um, Wendy and Rose having like this budding relationship. I don't think you have to. I think if that's what you're reading, like it's a, you know, a personal interpretation, that's great. If you, if that's what you, how you want to read it, fantastic. Also, why are people so afraid of close friendship? I don't know. <laughs> I, I am so close with all my female friends. We hold hands and, and, you know, tell each other that we love each other dearly all the time because that's what friendship is, is to us. And so I think, again, it's, it's so personal and people, people who have to read into female relationship that deeply, that's unfortunate uh, if they're going to ban it for that reason. I, I mean, again, if, if that's how they want to read it, great. But to assume that and then ban it because of that is just terrible. Yeah. I think a lot of the fear of close female friendship, and I did, I could see Wendy as a queer, as a queer woman myself. When I was reading her, I was like, oh, I wonder if this is something that's going to come into play. I didn't necessarily read her as in love with Rose. I read her more as being fearful of Rose pulling away. Whether that there's a romantic feeling there or not, it wasn't like super projected onto the page for me, but I could see Wendy as a queer character. But a lot of the folks that are fighting so hard to pull books away from children, they are rooted in Christian beliefs and the idea that you would have two girls who were so close, who would support each other, that kind of shakes the bedrock of Christianity, right? It's supposed to be the man up here, then the woman's here to serve the man, and then there's the family. So if you have a close female friendship, that can rival the relationship and your servitude to your husband. And if you have a close female friendship, she might 
warn you against certain abusive behaviors. She might support you in leaving in an abusive relationship. So I think this is where the fear is coming from. If you have people that are so close, is it gay? And if it's gay, then that's terrible. Even if it's not gay, you should not be that close to someone outside of your family. It's the family unit and that's all that matters. God and the family unit. So I think that's where the fear is coming from for that particular group of people. I do think it's important to mention that 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 isn't actually true Christianity. That is the warped version that people are passing off as Christianity. And if we want to go back to that slippery slope, the Bible has also been banned on multiple occasions. So perhaps that's something that (laughs) the fake Christians should keep in mind before they start pulling other people's books. Yeah, obviously, this is a very extremist, fundamentalist view of Christianity. And yeah, talk about sexually explicit. The Bible is the most sexually explicit (laughs) thing out there. So I want to talk to Brenna about this first, because you are a graphic novelist. Do you think that the book was more or less likely to become polarizing because it was a graphic novel? So. I I was I was watching this video of Mariko and Jillian talk about uh, this book actually, and from what they were saying, it, it had me thinking that the images made it so much safer because they were talking about this idea of communication versus non communication and how so many of the difficult themes are fleshed out in the illustrations alone and not so much in the writing. And um, the epitome of show don't tell, huh? <laughs> yeah. Um, and and Rick, I think Rico actually said like it's comics are such a good way of showing not telling. That's I think that's what she said in the video. Um, and I don't know if that makes it easier or harder to di- digest because watching it come to life before your face, it. It gets so more. It's more emotional that way. Like you're, you're, you, you can feel what they're feeling so much stronger. And in my mind, that makes it safer because it's about increasing understanding and increasing awareness. I'm sure to some people that would make it worse. Is is showing what it's like to feel this certain way or experience these things. Um, so that's again, it's hard to it's hard to say because I don't understand why people have such a big problem with that. So um, I really don't know. I I think that I would feel less comfortable with a young kid reading just the straight prose versus the graphic novel. But I have no idea what is going through other people's minds, um, and if they would feel like just writing would be safer than the images. Mm. Fair. How about you, Tony? Well, <laughs> I just had to deal with this. Um, uh, I've had I've had a student complain about a graphic novel being used in a class, um, and the student admitted that it was because it was a graphic novel. That the that if it were a book, and it was ta- describing the same things, but the student didn't need to see it, then they would be less offended. And it was the imagery um, that was offensive to the student. So I do think. Do you feel comfortable sharing the book? Um, saga. Okay. Yep. Yep. And um, and of course, you know, Fiona's a queen. 
um, and her art is exceptional. Um, but yeah, it, it, it was it was a silly it was a conversation, and I and and um, ultimately, you know, I resolved the situation in the way that I had to, and I can't get into any more of that legally. But I just I can say that it was it came up, and that was specifically at the the student, and it's not the only time. And I've used Decelerate Blue in class, and that book, spoiler alert, ends with two girls kissing, and I've had people be like, "What the hell?" I know, shock. Oh no, two girls. Um, and I was like, one of them is murdered and the other one commits suicide, but you're more upset about the kissing, huh? Okay. Um, not about the spoilers. It's, I know you are, sorry, but it was to prove the point, but it's like, that is the thing. It is so crazy to me. So I do think it is the images. I do think that it's the seeing of the thing, um, that, that does make it more polarizing because people say like, you know, and I don't get it. Because to me, I'm with Brenna. I'm like, I think like sometimes the images make it soft. It makes it, it, going back to your question about intentionality, we're seeing the artist's intention there. Like it's harder to misinterpret what exactly I wanted you to see. And again, this isn't a graphic book in any way, shape or form. I mean, you know, like it's intense. The 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 place where the dud lives and like his neighborhood is pretty intense and it's graphic and it seems like it's not necessarily the safest place for people to be. And it's, you know, full of detritus. But that's not graphic. I mean, you don't see anybody like step on a needle. Like the, there's no like it doesn't turn into alien. There's no chest bursters. I don't understand. Um, so yeah, I do think that just be misleading too because graphic has certain implications. True. It's true. In this sense, it just means drawn. You know, it just means drawn. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the number of times people have asked me if I draw like graphic novels, meaning imagery in novels or like violent novels, is insane. <laughs> <laughs> the term graphic is always open to interpretation. We covered gender queer last year, and to say the phrase a graphic memoir, it just sounds <laughs> it sounds different from what it actually is. So it's just drawn, that's all. It's images. Veronica. I feel like a lot of it has to do with the overall perception of graphic novels for the population at large. I feel like, sadly, most folks don't really understand, like we were just talking about, they don't understand what a graphic novel is. And so in their mind, it's it's pictures. Well, pictures, that's for kids. That's for, you know, like a picture book. That's what's that's what a graphic novel is. It's like, well, no, that's not, that's not the same thing. So I do think that the fact that it's a graphic novel does make it more likely to end up in that type of category because it's easier for people to misunderstand it because there's just less of an acceptance, less of an, a full understanding of what the medium is. And I do think I kind of have like the opposite um, impression that Brenna does. Theoretically, if you're reading prose, you're at the mercy of your own imagination, right? You've got the whole, you could picture it as awful or not awful as, as you want to or don't want to. Whereas if you're looking at the image, it's already set there for you. There, there's nothing for you to picture beyond what is on the page. It's already there for you. So theoretically, you would think the graphic novel has less of a place to go in terms of offensive imagery. But with this particular one, because the art is so evocative and so alive and so intense, it contributes to the way that the reader feels. And I think really turns up 
the volume on kind of that intensity and that um, reaction in the reader. So yeah, I definitely feel it was more likely to, to be banned because it is a graphic novel rather than if this was just prose. Because those words, you know, like blowjob, the pregnancy, it would get lost in all of the words that are there. But there are so few words on these pages. It's all about the images that the few words that are there stand out even more. Mm, that's a really good point. So you, Veronica, you you touched on the target age group earlier. This publisher re recommended the book for the 12 to age group or I'm sorry, 12 to 18 age group. Is that where you would place this? Is that your recommendation? Yes. Yeah. I think this is very appropriate for 12 to 18. Uh, the protagonist is 12, right? She's, is that how old Rose is? You know, I don't I, I, I kind of felt, I kind of felt like Rose was like just turned 13 and maybe Wendy's still like 11 and a half. I don't know. That's my read. But again, I don't think it specifically says, but yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it definitely is appropriate for kids like tweens and older. I think for tweens, because when you're talking about children reading, they like to read for a protagonist that's either their age or older, right? Mm -hmm. They don't like to read about kids that are younger. So to see kind of what she's experiencing, what she's learning. And what I think that the lesson that she's learning is so valuable that when you're a kid, so much of your world is your own interiority, but there's so much outside of that. And to be able to understand other people, even though you don't know what they're going through, to be able to empathize and understand that there's more to what's happening than what you see in front of you. I think that's a valuable lesson, even for adults these days <laughs> to, to come to grips with. So yeah, I think it's definitely a great, um, a, a great resource for that type of lesson, for that type of experience, understanding grief, understanding. I think a lot of kids go through rough times with their families, right? Like your parents are fighting and there's something that they're not talking about to you, right? They're talking about it with each other. And sometimes they're yelling about it with each other, but you're not brought into that conversation as a child. And I think that's something that's so relatable. And to see it, like Brenna was saying before, so unsanitized, so raw on the page is a really valuable thing for a child to be like, okay, yes, this is an experience I can relate to. This is something that I can understand. So yeah, I think that age group is beyond appropriate. And don't you think there's also a value to adults reading this so they see that, okay, they're not telling this child what is happening, but she's still very much affected by it. She's still aware enough to see the tension and the consequences of whatever this thing is. So though the parents have made the decision, okay, we're not going to make this her problem, it's still her problem. And not knowing kind of adds to it. You know, it's the whole, now I have no idea what's going on. Imagine what this child is thinking about what is going on between her parents because they didn't tell her. And I'm not saying that they should have, maybe they should have done a better job of hiding it from her, but it's kind of impossible when you're all together like that. So what about you, Brenna? What, what would you recommend as the age for this? I agree. I think 12 to 18 is, is 
perfectly fine. I I was speaking to a school at one point um, back when I was living in Kansas City and I was kind of talking to the kids about what graphic novels they liked. And I had mentioned this one summer, not expecting anyone to really know it. They, the kids were in fifth grade and this one girl excitedly raised her hand. She was like, that's my favorite graphic novel. And that's, you know, it's age 10 or 10 or 11. And so certain kids, it's definitely going to resonate with maybe others it won't, mm -hmm. but every, all readers read on different levels. And I think, I think the age ranges are always just a start. Like any book with an age range is not necessarily completely accurate to who was reading this book. So 12 to 18 as a basis, and then maybe 12 year olds won't resonate with it, but, but clearly a 10 year old might be. Right. So, so it, it's really, it has to be taken loosely, the, the age ranges. Tony? Yeah, I agree. Um, and like I said, from the, from the beginning, I do think it's important to, you know, have a rating system and to do whatever, you know, like, I do think that like the film rating system isn't good enough, like the way they do it in the UK with a 12 and a 14 and a 16. Like it makes a little more sense than us, like PG-13, like James Bond can kill a million people and it's PG-13 and then go, you know, like Austin Powers is also PG-13. Like those are different experiences for the for the viewer, right? But they're both somehow PG-13 and I don't understand that. Um, and so yeah, 12, what's that? Jaws is PG. Jaws is PG, as was Airplane. So let's just wrap our minds around all of that. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that is that is well said, friend. That is totally true. So yeah, 12 to 18, I agree with what Brenna said. It's a start. Um, wh where is your kid? Know the kid. The librarian, the teacher, the parent knows your kid. I was a young reader, so therefore I was reading young. Like I read, you know, Of Mice and Men, when I was 10, I read Catcher in the Rye when I was nine. I read like you read what you read. This book would have been amazing. And and again, like you talk about Brenna, that 10-year-old, there's something about this book. The reason it's her favorite graphic novels, because there's an experience here that she gets, whether she resonates with Rose, whether she resonates with Wendy, because they're both going through some stuff. Right. Whether they've got like a brother like Duncan or they've got a sister like Sarah, like something here is happening. So so or they're just like, God, it's beautiful. Like we all think and they're like it's gorgeous. and I just want to look at it forever. And it's amazing. Even if you couldn't read the words, even if you were illiterate and couldn't read English or couldn't read English, you could read this book and love it. Right. So it is just a starting range. And to say, I mean, I wouldn't I would put it in the YA room at my library, which is where this copy is. It's this one that I have right here is from the Y. It's got to keep checking books out from the library. Right? Um, is in YA. I think that's where it belongs. Um, but I but I wouldn't you know, if I saw a 10, nine year old wandering in there and grabbing it, I wouldn't, you know, tackle her. In any stretch of imagination. <laughs> so. So what are the reasons that people should pick up this book? What lessons can be learned from it? Brenna. I think one thing I wanted to speak to is um, despite everything we've been saying, it is so safe in the way it portrays the exposure to the issues. So everything uh, Rose knows is, I don't know, I guess like what she's experiencing is so limited. Like we see her kind of pass through these issues and not ever really get the full story. And it's kind of like we are experiencing what it is like to be a young teen and not fully understanding what is all happening, but still being exposed to it. And honestly, that that lack of awareness is kind of the scariest thing, like not knowing why certain things are happening. To me, that's the scariest part of this book is just the the lack of full clarity. 
but that is so resonant to what it is like to be that age and not fully know what's going on. And I think for kids to be able to experience that, to, to be able to know what it feels like to, oh my gosh, yes, I know I I'm experiencing very similar issues and I also don't really understand them fully. So I guess the reason for young people to pick up is, is that reason, but then also for older people to pick up is to like, understand our own youth like to if if adults have children to realize like this is what it's like for them to go through the issues that we're having in adulthood so it's just kind of it's just the understanding it's it's sharing understanding without being too in your face about it and that's how life is (laughs) how about you tony yeah i mean as i said earlier books are empathy machines and this is a big empathy generator um i the reason you would recommend someone to read this book is because there is stuff going on. It's like we've all, I do feel like I personally feel if there were a book too, which I'm glad there isn't, but they, Jillian and Mariko have a new book coming out this year or like next month. So I can't wait. But, um, but the, this book, if you're, if you're afraid, you know, you're a kid and you're like, oh, I miss my friends. Are they going to still like, like there's all kinds of different fears that are happening in this book that this can help you relate to. So I think, Regardless of your situation, whether you've got parents that are going through some stuff, whether you have, uh, um, you know, you're you're not connecting with adults, adults and kids aren't connecting. If the friends are, I mean, there's just so many things to feel empathy. So I, this is one of those read-along books in my mind. Like, don't just give it to the kid. Like when I was a kid and had questions, my parents, uncomfortable Catholics, would be like, "Here's a book," and that was my whole thing figure it out on your own. And it wasn't like, here's a book. Now let's go talk about the book that we just handed you. It was like, here's all the answers. And so I still feel that way that all the answers are in books. Um, so I feel like this book is a, is a great read along. Like I can't wait for people that I know who have younger kids who can read this with their kids and be like, let's, let's sit. You're 11. And we're going to sit down and read this one summer this weekend. And then we're going to have a big, this one summer party. And I, I just, so to me, that's what it is. It's just an amazing bonding moment. Veronica. I love that. I love that so much. I, cause yeah, Tony's right. There is so much going on here for all of these characters. And it's that sort of almost cliche idea of like the summer that changed everything and nothing was the same afterwards, but you know what? That's kind of what it's like when you're a kid, (laughs) like, like big stuff happens in the summer between certain grades and certain ages and yeah there's just so much here to unpack and to experience and I love the idea of parents having going through this experience with their kid and I do I would recommend this for adults too because you you forget you forget what it's like to be a kid and to kind of be on the outside of yourself looking in and going where 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 is this headed? Who am I going to be? What am I going to be? And to kind of see that and, and relive that, I think, yeah, it brings an empathy, not just for other people, but for yourself, for, for the person who you used to be, the experiences that you were going through growing up and, and what they've led you to now. So yeah, everything that Tony was saying about this generating empathy and yeah, creating conversations for families. And I think this is a great way to have those difficult conversations in a way that you, the parent, can control. 
right? Because there's so much out there that parents are constantly trying to shield their children from some of it very rightfully so, but this is a way to introduce difficult conversations and difficult concepts and topics in a way that allows you, the adult, to be the person providing the answers, not the internet, not, you know, Jessica's older cousins, brothers, whatever. No, it's you. You are going to set the tone for your child on these very difficult thoughts and shepherd them and guide them through this, this process. So I think that would be a really beautiful thing for, for parents to do with their children. And I think that is a really beautiful place to end this. I love all of that. Before we wrap up, I do want to thank my sisters on the FemOn Collective for making space for all of this this week. And I want to thank my wonderful guests for your thoughtful input. Veronica, where can people find you and support your work? Uh, you can find my work uh, on my website, veronicaclash.com. Uh, that is Veronica with a C, Clash with a K. I have links to all of my published stuff there. I am on the app formerly known as Twitter. Uh, and anywhere on social media, you will find me at Veronica Clash. Um, again, Veronica with a C, Clash with a K. And Brenna? Yeah, I am also on the social media um, and you can find me uh, at Brenna Thumler and my website, sorry if I tie in my face right now. <laughs> um, uh, my website is brennathumler.com and I'm most active on Instagram. You can find out a lot of book news and stuff like about my work on there. Tony. Yes, my website, where shockingly, we've all made our websites our names, arfaruna.com. That's the best place to reach me. Interestingly enough, what you said about summers, the second book in my series, Veronica, only takes place in the summers. It takes place over five years, but I, but I made it just be five summers. I'm like, and I do the years as montages. I'm like, school, who cares? Let's, we all just want to get next to the summer. So <laughs> I love that you said that. Um, and as a plug, because I know this is actually coming out during, this is coming out in, in October. So if you go back onto Comics in Motion, where I assume these will also be playing again this year, friend, um, there will be my friend, Brenna Thumler, will be back on Indie Comics Spotlight to talk about her new book, Lights, which comes out uh, right before this show releases. So that'll be out. So go back in the archives and listen to me and Brenna talk, which we haven't done yet, but it'll happen all <laughs> timey wimey. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. What's that? Oh, and we have the Sonic Salon. Yes, where where we, Tanya and myself and a few other like-minded nerds, we write um, original work and we record it. And it's an auditory uh, fiction and essay guide um, of all kinds of things. And we've had all kinds of amazing things. People reading children's book and people reading poetry. We've had musicians on. So it's very cool. By It's fortnightly, the Sonic Salon. Well, that's it for today's conversation. If you enjoyed what you heard, please like, comment, and share. Thank you for listening, and more importantly, thank you for reading.